Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody, welcome to the last Q&A episode for 2023, or rather 2022 as we roll into 2023. And I want to wish everybody a happy New Year's as you are watching this today, Sunday. It is New Year's Day, and so I am personally hoping for um, the best of 2023. I am really hoping that this new year rolls out a lot of good things and good fortune for everybody, and that all of my critics out there, all of you supporters, um, that we see an even greater impact against destructive cults and coercive controlling behavior out there in this new year. And hopefully I will be able to provide more content and education and information for you guys uh, so that you, your friends and family and anybody else out there can um, can just get along better. You know, that's really the goal of all of this at this point. Saving the world was something we, we gave up on a long time ago. But trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, trying to be a positive influence in the world and trying to help our fellow man is really what this is all about so I want to thank all of you for your support and kindness and uh, positivity and everything else you have brought to my channel and into my life personally, by the way, over the last many years here. And uh, let's go ahead now. And now that I've gotten all my well wishes and, and thank you. And also, by the way, let me throw out a special round of thank yous and acknowledgement for my Patreon supporters out there. You guys are the ones who are actually if we're really talking turkey, you guys are the ones who are really keeping this channel going. Uh, quite honestly, if I didn't have the Patreon support that I had, this channel would not be in existence and I would be out delivering pizzas or doing some other nonsensical sort of work rather than being able to help and educate you guys. It is really fan-funded 100%. So I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters out there and encourage anybody who is enjoying the channel, enjoying my content, and is getting something out of this to please support it through um, PayPal, Venmo, Patreon links below to all of this. And of course, as always, share the work and get it out there. All right, now, all of that intro being done, let's get on with your questions. Nick C. People have been asking about funeral rites in Scientology recently. Is there a method of body disposal, funeral with or without embalming, cremation, etc., Scientology prefers? Conversely, is there a method it prohibits or rejects? I have a hard time imagining that Scientology, with its understanding of the body as merely a temporary vessel for an eternal Phaeton, would care, but I'd rather know than guess. All right, Nick, thank you for this question. And I thought I might take the opportunity to talk a bit more broadly about Scientology's history with religious rites and rituals and funerals, of course, being one of them. I've already answered in, in detail that Scientology funerals are really no different than any other funeral service or memorials uh, in that there is a written text. Uh, it is This is the old edition of the Scientology uh, the, the Backgrounds and Ceremonies book. That's what this is. This is published in the 1970s, and it was an effort to religiousize Scientology and give it an air of legitimacy with uh, religious thinking and 
Um, when it says background in ceremonies, it goes all the way back 10,000 years to the Vedas and the Vedic hymns and India and uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism. And it tries to establish itself as a part of that religious lineage or his- history and our tradi- religious tradition, I should say. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, callbacks and references made to to all of those things, as well as Christianity. And um, and part of this book was publishing the religious rites for Scientology, the rituals. And so there is a funeral service in here, a couple of them, as well as a, med- a wedding ceremony, naming ceremony uh, for babies, things like that. They're all in. They're all in this book. And in the year 2000, David Miscavige decided that this whole thing needed a massive facelift and that Scientology's religious status needed to be bolstered even harder in the public eye as a public image PR point. And so this book was revised, and I'll show you a screenshot here since I don't have a physical copy of this particular book. Uh, You can see it is huge now, and that was because they added a whole bunch of... um, group processing sessions to the official Sunday service that had been defined and laid out in this little book, the prayer for total freedom that exists in um, the re- in the Sunday services now is here in this book. Clearly not written by L. Ron Hubbard, by the way. Most of these religious um, trappings and nonsense were not written by Hubbard. The funeral service, there's a wedding service and a naming ceremony. They are specifically stated to have been written by Hubbard. And that's why you can compare and contrast what is and isn't written by him because the things that were written by him get name credit in this in this earlier work. Now it's all assumed that it's all just L. Ron Hubbard and his name is slapped on it as though he came up with all of this stuff when in fact he did not. Another thing you might find funny and interesting in this old book is um, this makes the bold and very clear claim that the Church of Scientology congregations are today measured in millions. So back, all the way back here, copyright uh, 1972, 1970, they were saying millions and millions of Scientologists in their official publications. That was never, ever true. Now, that all being said, um, as far as I thought you might find it a little interesting if I were to talk a little bit about the funeral service itself. You asked Nick whether they prefer um, any particular body disposal system. They do not. L. Ron Hubbard was cremated. Uh, that was basically to hide the evidence of you know what was in his body and uh, get, get all that out of there right away. Uh, so a lot of Scientologists I knew um, back in the back when I was part of that did talk about how they were just going to get their body cremated because they didn't see the point of burying it in the ground. Uh, that it is true, Scientologists do tend to treat their bodies with a certain degree of even you know the, the slipshod indifference, even contempt. But um, you do have this um, this funeral service that they read, and I'll read you a little bit from this. This is this one is really quite interesting. This book because it actually has a uh, founding Church of Scientology funeral service by L. Ron Hubbard, and then it has a funeral oration for Homo sapiens by Tom Esterbrook, and I'm not sure. Um, 
who Tom Esterbrook was, but it's not L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, but the L. Ron Hubbard Founding Church of Scientology Funeral Service does talk about having a casket in the room or maybe brought in a processional as in a funeral conducted in the church. And so they do make reference to and, and allow for having the open casket, closed casket, any kind of funeral service you'll see elsewhere you can find in Scientology's traditions. And um, then there is this uh, service, this thing that gets read out by a Scientology minister. And I'll just read you a, a few little bits and pieces because it goes on for pages. And I don't think you want to hear me try to orate the entire thing. Um, but he says here, our loss is gain in other times. Our hopes on future bent must then depend on incidents like these for bodies where... And in the fine grist mill of time are spent in service such as yours. And go our time by smallest time into the yesterday wherein began the conquest of eternity. I'm, I'm really barely trying to make this make sense, but you can kind of get the gist of, of Hubbard's sort of po waxing poetic here as he goes on for pages um, with this funeral service. Um, he says here, for example, to feel, um, to feel that all our love, our work, our gifts, our knowledge, and our size were meant to be consumed all in one breath and flash and by one name? Question. Today come wiser now, the chains gone wink, the tyranny of cult gone tired with the years, we look, we find, we live, not once, but on and on, from body's birth to body's grave and then to birth again. So the cycle that I talk about of birth, death, birth, death that, that, that exists in, in Scientology's dogma is illustrated here in, the, um, in this funeral oration. And it ends off with a goodbye, a... Um, this chapter of thy life is shut. Go now, dear deceased, and live once more in happier time and place. Thank you, deceased. And now here lift up your eyes and say to him or her, goodbye. And the congregation says, goodbye. Goodbye, our dear. Goodbye. We'll miss you, you know. Let the body now draw away to be consumed to ashes and to dust in earthly and in cleanly fire, to be more, no more. And that is done. Come, friends. He is all right, and he is gone. We have our work to do, and he has his. He will be welcome there to man. And that is the uh, end of that funeral service. So anyway, just wanted to share a little bit more in, of the details and lore connected with Scientology funerals, because it has been coming up on my channel recently. People have been asking me about it. So I thought I would go back to the actual scriptures here and share a little bit with you from that. So, Nick, I hope that answers your questions on this. Um, there are no prohibited or rejected forms of uh, funeral, you know, services or, or body disposal or anything like that. Uh, people just kind of get on with it and think to themselves as Scientologists that Joe or Nancy are not gone. They are still living entities that exist in the real universe, but they no longer will manifest through the body that they had. And so will no longer 
be able to interact with them in the same way. But they are not dead. They are not gone. It is just a temporary um, absence uh, that they are gone. So that is the that's the attitude of, sci- of of funerals in Scientology. And there you go, Laura Raymer. Have you talked about baby auditing yet? I was just reading about it at the Mace Kingsley Scientology School website, where Hubbard is quoted. You process a one-day-old baby. Start the session. Doesn't matter that the kid can't answer you. That has no bearing on it at all. Start the session. Audit the child in a proper auditing room. Use communication bridges when you change the process. Bridge out of the session and end the session smoothly when the process is flat. What does this mean? How common is it for Scientologists to have their babies audited? All right, Laura, thank you for this question. And what you're, what you're seeing here is some terminology from Scientology auditing techniques. But what Hubbard is basically saying and is this is another aspect of children are just adults in little bodies and they need to be treated formally and properly as uh, mature spiritual entities. And so what Hubbard's trying to assert here is that when you do an auditing session on a, 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 a thetan in a little baby body or a child body, even if they cannot express or say or emote the things that they are feeling, they, those feelings, those mature emotions and feelings and responses are all still there in the spiritual being that is inhabiting this body, the thetan. And so Hubbard says that out of respect for that being, and because you're addressing an infinitely old spiritual entity who only happens to occupy a body that is a few days or you know years old, you still need to treat that uh, with the respect that it's due and give it an, a formal auditing session. And auditing has rules. Auditing sessions are very standardized, very formal processes. They're not casual, you know, sort of off-the-cuff kind of activities. So when you start a session, there is a formal process of doing it. You sit the person down, you make sure they're comfortable, well-fed, well-rested, and you actually give them a start of session. You say, this is the session. And you're not supposed to just toss it off. You're supposed to give it to the person so they really get this session has now begun. It's a sort of a this is the session kind of a statement. And um, well, it's not kind of like that. It's exactly like that. And then you begin, um, depending on the kind of auditing you're doing, you begin the steps of that auditing. And with a baby, you're going to be doing, or children, you're going to be doing objective type auditing, meaning it's the kind of auditing that doesn't go down into memory. Instead, it addresses the physical universe reality or environment that the person's body is in. And the effort here with objective auditing is to orient and put a person's attention in the present moment. Uh, it's a, It's a sort of a it's not, I, I'm not even going to say it has anything to do with mindfulness because it's not really the same concept. It's, it's, it's having your attention as a, as a spiritual entity in the here and now means that your attention is not stuck or fixated on the past. 
And there's a great deal of stock in Scientology placed in having your attention stuck in the past. And if it's stuck in the past, it's not in the here and now where it should be. And this could be the reason why a person might have accidents or bump into things or not be aware of their environment or not have situational awareness or, you know, be out of it, uh, that kind of thing. And, and to the degree that you are distracted or embroiled or stuck in your past, you're not able to create your present and thereby create your future. So the objective auditing that is done on children is often done as a way to sort of distract and and then get them into the present moment so they're not, you know, stuck in some upset about, you know, lost candy or 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 lost homework or the bully in the in the yard, you know, who who gave them a hard time that day or something. Instead, you are bringing them to present time and uh, then they can, you know, move forward into the future. And if this sounds sort of slipshoddy and weird and kind of like, well, that doesn't sound like it would really work very well. You're right. It doesn't. But I'm just kind of trying to explain how Scientologists think about this stuff and how they think that this kind of auditing of children would be a productive, useful thing to do. Is you they they consider that the child that the Thetan that's driving this child, rather, is is pretty out of it, pretty disoriented, pretty confused, especially with babies. Because here you're dealing with a Thetan who the assumption is they just died. They had a body, they lived an entire life, and now they died. And they've forgotten about that, and they're a little confused and disoriented and they've forgotten about it because of the between lives implants that tell them, order them to forget. And, and they're so habituated to it, they just kind of go along with it. And so they go get another body, but they are disoriented and confused and they don't know what's up. And they're, they're feeling those, they're still feeling the emotional loss and the, the lack of, um, well, they've just been, you know, kind of ripped out of that life and now put into this new one. And they got new parents and new relationships and a new environment. And, you know, who you know, who knows how they're doing, right? And Hubbard says children can even be a little psychotic, sometimes a lot psychotic. So, um, so the auditing is all in the direction of trying to orient and help stabilize the being in this new body and situation. And children are not expected to be auditing memories or engrams or painful moments in their past until they're about eight or nine years old. They're not really seriously, and nobody's really trying to relieve them of past incidents of stress and trauma and pain and emotion. That's for later when they're a bit more mature, have a bit more language, have a bit more ability to deal with the past. So for children, you're really just trying to do that objective kind of auditing on them, but you're trying to do it in a formal, respectful way. You know, that's kind of the attitude that Scientologists are, are seeing this quote and, and reading this and going, oh, well, what's this all about? Well, it really just means treat them like little adults and little bodies because that's what Hubbard says they are. And, um, you know, again, this is totally wrongheaded. It's completely psychologically wrong to be treating children as though they're adults. They are not. They do not have the maturity or development or understanding or education to be treating them like adults. And this is just more Hubbard gobbledygook. At the, at the end of the day, 
despite all my explanations of how this is supposed to make sense, at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense. And you will be hurting children if you treat them like they are supposed to be little adults or that they are, you know, fully realized, fully emotionally and intellectually mature spiritual entities just, you know, hiding out in a body. That's that's a wrong way of looking at children. And you will screw them up if you treat them that way. And that's why Scientology parents are set up to lose and fail before they've even started, you know. So anyway, there's a little bit of, um, of data for you, and I hope that all of this helps clarify that, Laura. Steve Wood, I'm listening to your recent interview of an ex-Scientologist from London, which prompted me to ask how come you only hear people speaking out about Scientology publicly, mainly from the United States. I don't believe other countries have such a united front about exposing Scientology in the way that happens here in the U.S., All right, Steve. Well, I will say that Scientology, first off, is mostly a United States activity. The the basis of operation for Scientology, where the most people are located, is Clearwater, Florida and Los Angeles, California. And they have thousands of Scientologists in both of those places. And so you would tend to then see most ex-Scientologists are going to be Americans or are going to be people who left in the United States. You have um, certainly well-represented ex-Scientologists from France, Germany, Russia, England, Australia. You know, they're, they're around. They're, you, I'm sure you can find ex-Scientology um, forums or, or chat rooms or even video content in other countries. I am positive that there must be some ex-Scientologists speaking up in Taiwan or in Mexico or Latin America but no, you don't see it as much because you, because you see, I think, the representation in the X world is a reflection of just, you know, where the, where the population centers of Scientology are in the real world. Um, so that all being said, I guess I could also comment on the fact that um, there might be more of this uh, speaking out or criticism or open, you know, ridicule and education about Scientology in the English American world because um, of the freedom of speech, you know, that we also have afforded to us in the United States, where other countries don't have the same kind of tradition of free speaking or free thought. Um, their governments are more limited in terms of liability laws, what they can and can't say or get away with in a public forum. I know in Europe and the UK, for example, libel laws are a bit, they have a bit more teeth and they're a bit easier to, um, to enforce or apply. And it's not to say that Scientology critics are engaging in libel or slander because they're not, but you can still use those laws in a, um, in such a way as to shut down open criticism or free thought or free um, skepticism or criticism about groups, right? It's much harder in the UK, for example, to publish works that are anti-Scientology. Just ask John Atack about it. His book, uh, 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 Let's Sell Them a Piece of Blue Sky, was was shut down and not able to be sold in the UK. I, I don't know if that's still been fixed or not, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but I know for many years, the UK publishers would not publish it. 
Same with other Scientology works uh, from Scientology critics, right? Memoirs, testimonials about their experiences. Uh, They just won't touch it because it's easier to shut it down. Anyway, point, I think point being made there. So um, those are really my only thoughts around that, Steve. I don't know what else to tell you about that, but I hope that that gives a little bit more insight or explanation on that. Barney Saunders, you spoke recently about one particular aspect of your cultic experience in Scientology, how getting along meant trying to please other people who you somehow thought of as authority figures. Saving the world meant making everyone happy, bringing joy and bliss to the world. A grand sacrifice to give one's life meaning and purpose. As Hubbard himself said, a being is only as valuable as he can serve others, which in itself is a mind trap of slavery. And also, thinking of yourself as a second-class citizen, a feeling of inadequacy that Scientology very much served to reinforce. Is what you are referring to weaponized empathy? In other words, did you fall into the role of weaponized empath? And a broader question, in Scientology and other destructive cults, would you say most people are weaponized empaths? Have there been any studies on the proportions of different types of people that are in destructive cults? Barney, thank you very much for this question. And you've done a championship job there of paraphrasing uh, what I described as my mental state for most of my life growing up in and around Scientology and then getting coerced into working for the church, thinking that I was saving the world when in fact I was just martyring myself for decades and, um, you know, being a a quite willing slave to Scientology's labor trafficking operation. So was this weaponized empathy? No, not as I think about it. So let me try to define or think or talk about what weaponized empathy is and and how we might uh, recognize it. So empathy is defined quite simply as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. That's empathy, right? And it's something that is, is as, as a concept has only existed for about 70 years or so in writing that we see as a, as a term that is used widely and broadly as a psychological concept. Um, so in other words, in the history of people, it's a fairly new idea. Believe it or not, it's actually quite interesting diving down through etymology and and literature and words and and language, how new some concepts are, even though you can go back in history and apply it, see it, um, that doesn't mean they were thinking about it or thinking with it. Now, empathy, if empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another, how do you weaponize it? By giving people the idea that you can basically kill somebody with kindness. You can get somebody in a state of mind where they want to help people. They want to save the world. They want to make the world a better place. They can feel. Now, a lot of people have had that that idea or those goals, and they didn't have to be empaths to have those goals. But where weaponized empathy comes into play is... When you have somebody who is empathic, who does feel for other people and therefore feels an, an urge or motivation or drive to try to help people because they want to feel that other people are living their best lives. They're, they want other people to feel happiness and joy because when they 
think about or observe those people, they are understanding how those people feel by feeling it themselves. Now, now what they're feeling, what the, what the empath is feeling or experiencing may or may not be an accurate representation of what this other person is feeling, but it's their view or idea of what that person's feeling. I hope that makes sense. I'm using a lot of pronouns there. Bottom line is that if you want the world to feel good or feel better and somebody tells you, well, if everybody ate Twinkies, the world would be a better place. Everybody would feel better. Everybody would get along better. The world would be a better place if everybody was downing Twinkies every hour. So this empath then buys into that idea and goes, oh, okay, so what I need to do with myself is sell people on the idea of eating Twinkies and get them to eat as many Twinkies as possible because that's what's going to make them feel better and I'll feel better because they feel better. And then the weaponization of this comes in when the idea is introduced well, you know, not everybody's going to agree with this. Some people are anti-Twinkie, and some people are so anti-Twinkie that they run around destroying the Twinkies, burning down the factories, wanting to, to you know, make the Twinkies illegal. Let's get rid of all the Twinkies, ban the Twinkies. And the empath is now convinced that Twinkies are the way to salvage the world, and so will treat all these anti-Twinkie people as the enemy as bad people. They're the enemies of mankind, and therefore, in order for me as an empath to fulfill my mission of twinketizing the entire world and thereby making it happy, I got to get rid of these bad people. These bad, awful people either need to be converted to our cause, they need to see the error of their ways, or they need to be moved out of the way. And the empath will have no problem destroying, you know, killing, uh, raising, you know, whatever needs to happen to get these anti-Twinkie people the hell out of the picture so that Twinkies can be delivered 24-7. And, of course, I'm using the most ridiculous example possible here on purpose because I want you guys to understand how this works. And that is, and, and generally speaking, I think we all know, Twinkies are actually bad for you. The world is not going to be saved by everybody eating Twinkies every hour on the hour. But it would not be hard to convince a certain set of people that that is the truth. And that if they want the world to be a better place, and if they want people to succeed and get well, then they're going to have to force those Twinkies on these people, right? They got to get the Twinkies into the hands and into the mouths of every single person. Um, so you see, it's more of weaponized empathy is really a matter of, of, of manipulation. It's a manipulation technique. It's a way of taking a set of people, empaths, people who feel for other people, and manipulating them to get them to do what you want. And in this case, that is you know feeding everybody Twinkies. And getting rid of all the people who are anti-Twinkie. The, 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 the weaponized empaths will come up with that all on their own. All you have to do is convince them that Twinkies are good, that Twinkies are the best thing a person needs. 
and they'll and they'll roll with it and the whole us versus them and let's destroy all the anti twinkie people and all of that that all happens organically after you've convinced them that twinkies are the savior of mankind you see what i'm saying so so that's what a weaponized empath is it's a simple thing it's not a really complicated thing it's just taking that care that deep well of emotion that they have for other people and convincing them that the best way to help people is to hurt people, right? The best way to, dis- to save the world is to destroy the world. That's where, that's where that equation ends up always. It always ends up going in that horrible, awful direction because you have a bunch of people who have been convinced that the end justifies the means and the end doesn't justify the means and yet they think it does. And that's where, that's how I have always kind of thought about or seen weaponized empaths. So was I a weaponized empath? Oh yeah, definitely I was in Scientology, but I wanted to give a bigger explanation for why than simply I was martyring myself. It was, it's, there's a, there's an evil twist in that picture, which is that weaponized empaths have come up with a way of hurting people of of making it okay or rationalizing or justifying violence and death because that's necessary see in order to save the world and i hope all that makes sense there so there you go jesse davis when it comes to conspiratorial thinking one of the things that constantly pops up is anti-semitic tropes I've looked into 9-11 conspiracies and the international banking conspiracy, and the finger always tends to point at the Jewish community. Look at Kanye West's recent outbursts, for example. With Scientology engaging in conspiratorial thinking, do they also engage in anti-Semitism? I know the Nation of Islam is intertwined with Scientology, and that group also engages in anti-Semitic conspiratorial thinking. Oh, yeah, you're nailing it here. Now, the anti-Semitism in Scientology is very, very subtle. In fact, you could argue that it's not actually anti-Semitism directly, that the anti-Semitism in Scientology's conspiratorial framework is actually more of a uh, unspoken consequence of Hubbard's conspiracy rather than the direct cause of it. In other words, Hubbard never never that I know of went on a tear about Jews or the Jewish community specifically. He didn't target that group of people and say they are the reason why Scientology is failing or they are inhibiting or somehow detracting from Scientology. He didn't say he didn't identify that group of people. But he did target international bankers, and he talked about the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers specifically. And um, if you Google those things, you'll find you know Jewish connections or Jewish family lines there. So, so inadvertently, he's being anti-Semitic when he's talking about these people, but it's not targeted to them directly, if that makes sense. What Hubbard was targeting was, was centers of power, influence, and, and money. And um, and it just so happens that there are Jewish families and Jewish lines that have money, influence, and power in this world. So if you do come into Scientology or you do come at these conspiracies with an anti-Jewish bent or attitude or bias, 
then it would be very easy for you to find common ground with Scientology's conspiracy theories and say or get on that that conspiracy train and go, oh, the Scientologists are on board with my anti-Semitism. Not exactly. There are Jewish Scientologists. There are people who do Scientology who would never touch on or think about Jews or the Jewish people in a negative way. It's not required to be a Scientologist that you be anti-Semitic, but you'll find common ground with the, on, the, on the basis of those conspiracy theories. And this is absolutely a place where the Nation of Islam and Scientology come together in their conspiratorial dogma. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the anti-Semitism that is running rife through the Nation of Islam is a natural fit for Scientology. Um, but, it, but, it's a, but it's a weird thing in Scientology because they can be both anti-Semitic and, non, and, and pro-Semitic, you know, almost in the same sentence. I mean, it gets a little crazy making. It's another one of those like sort of things about Scientology. Are they? Aren't they? Well, they have their cake and they eat it too, right? That's kind of how Scientology approaches this stuff. And of course, if you were to ask any of Scientology's PR people about this, they would swear up one side and down the other that, you know, anybody who is thinking that there is anything anti-Semitic in Scientology is simply misreading it, taking it out of context. They are not anti-Semitic. They don't have anything against Jewish people. But then if you were to bring up the Nation of Islam thing, that's where you could start getting the ums, ers, uh, gee, I don't know. And no one, no one has ever called out a Scientology PR that I have seen in any format, anywhere on that Nation of Islam anti-Semitic connection. I, I don't see it really talked about or brought up very much at all. And it's a big, um, uh, what's the word? It's a, it's a weakness. It's a problem Scientology has. It's a great, great big one that is waiting to be uh, exploited, right? A big, huge problem there. Um, somehow Scientology has dodged that bullet for over a decade now, and I don't know how. Because um, the Nation of Islam influence in, in Scientology is definitely there. The partnership definitely exists. And the anti-Semitism, the blatant uh, bigotry and anti-Semitism in, in Nation of Islam, is it's undeniable. So, um, so is it there in Scientology? Could it be exploited in Scientology? Yes, no question about it. All the tropes are there. Uh, so there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Shimoda Tala. What's your new dog's favorite food slash toy? Our dog loves the rope toy. He loves chewing and being, you know, yanking and playing fetch and catch and stuff like that with the ropes. It's a lot of fun playing with him. He's this little tiny guy. So we have these, uh, it, you know, he doesn't take much to, to yank him around with it. I'm always careful of his teeth, but he's really, really into it. He's this, he's this very young, very energetic uh, three-year-old dog, and he's, uh, he just loves playing with the, with the rope. Sheila C., would it bother Scientology if a person took a painfully long time to complete a course that cost a flat fee while quickly finishing courses that are charged hourly? Hey, Sheila, thank you for this question. And I think you're differentiating here between coursework in the classroom and auditing, which happens up in the auditing rooms, which is a more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. 
That's what's paid for hourly. The coursework is paid paid for at a flat fee. You pay 500 bucks, you get a course, and it could take you six months to get through that course if you're only attending once every you know week or two. You're supposed to be on a regular schedule, and they really put the the the, the thumb screws on to get you in there for at least 15 hours a week of course time. But even at that schedule for a big chunky course, it'll take you a few months, you know, even a year to get through it. Um, again, depending on your attendance and how good you are at studying. Um, so was there frustration over the fact that coursework could take a long time and it was just a flat, cheap fee versus the auditing delivery, which was much more expensive and sold by the hour or hourly chunks? Yeah, we used to lament that all the time. Courses were almost in, invariably unviable to deliver to the public because they took so long to get through them. Um, auditing, on the other hand, is where we made money hand over fist. So that was where we put the bulk of our attention. And it's interesting because when Miscavige changed the priorities in Scientology to study and sitting in the classroom, reading books and listening to lectures... That really impacted Scientology's overall uh, income stream through its selling of services. And that's one of the reasons that they turned wholesale to um, just getting straight donations through IAS and building fund fundraisers. And that's where the bulk of Scientology's money is made now is just through people just throwing money at the church and they're not even getting anything for it. So there you go. Eric Mauser, I've always heard it posited that Hubbard did quote-unquote research, such as old photos of him with rudimentary electronics attached to tomato plants, etc. His debunked claims of being a physicist ad nauseum adds to this mystique of having done actual research. Being a scientist myself, I'm wondering, has there ever been published research by Hubbard or any attempt to prove he did any? I ask this because it seems to me his research claims have always been glossed over. I can show you my research work. Did Hubbard ever publish his? If not, how does Scientology treat this blatant gap in truth? Well, Eric, this is where Scientology being an applied religious philosophy gives Hubbard a complete pass on having to show any research findings or case studies. He made lame, lame attempts in the early 1950s to provide a few case studies and do a little bit of um, testing to show some um, some personality test changes or IQ test changes in people. And he claimed that that was all the scientific research that was needed in order to show that, that Dianetics was a valid mental health alternative to psychiatry and psychology. Uh, Hubbard was dead wrong about all of that and gave up on that whole thing when he just decided to go with the religion angle and make Scientology a religion now he doesn't have to prove anything. It's all taken on faith. And that's how Scientologists deal with the claims that Hubbard makes, is they take it on faith. They don't need or ask or want proof. And anybody who's in Scientology for very long who starts talking about or beating the drum for proof or research results is going to very quickly be shown the door. They are not at all interested in proving Scientology to you. You have to take it on faith. And they'll tell you, see, the crazy thing about Scientology is they'll tell you it's scientific, they'll tell you it's the truth, they'll tell you it's objective reality, but they will provide you nothing to prove any of that. And if you 
make trouble for them by continually asking them for their research results. They'll kick you out and they'll call you a source of trouble. That's how it works. That's why it's a cult. There you go. All right, folks, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in uh, for this final show of 2022. I very much appreciate your viewership, as I said at the beginning, and I hope that 2023 will bring thee and me uh, a great deal of good tidings, good joy, and uh, good luck. And with that, I will wrap up. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.